be seated. Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Jude, the second last book of the Bible. We, uh, we're going to take a break today from Hebrews that we've been in for a number of months now to look at just a couple of verses from the book of Jude. And the context, the reason we're doing so today is that today is what's commonly known as Reformation Day in Protestant and Reformed churches, and that is because October 31st marks the 505th anniversary of one of the most significant events in the history of the world, and certainly the most significant event within the last thousand years. That is the Protestant Reformation. And so we're going to consider the Reformation this morning, and I, I want to introduce you to some of the history and some of the leaders of the Reformation, but the goal from the outset, the goal is not to celebrate men. The goal is not to lament that we don't live in the good old days of Reformation. The reason we're going to do this is to consider the reality that the church is always to be about the work of Reformation as we contend earnestly for the faith. I think that's going to make some Christians uncomfortable because so many of us have grown accustomed to a form of Christianity that looks just enough like the world that it doesn't cost us anything to say that we follow Jesus. And I dare say, that other than perhaps maybe occasionally being ostracized from a crowd or passed over for a promotion, very few Christians that you and I know have ever really experienced persecution or suffering for the faith. That's why it's said that Americans worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. But I want to remind you this morning, nowhere in Scripture are we promised a Christian life that is marked by ease and comfort. Instead, what we see in the Scriptures is a Christian life marked by sacrifice and discipline and persecution. But with that, we're also promised the Lord Jesus, and He Himself is enough. He Himself is worth whatever it costs us to follow Him. Before I read God's Word, let's seek His blessing. Lord, we confess that our faith is often weak, and at times we crave comfort and ease, and we shy away from sacrifice. We shy away from anything that may make us look like outcasts, may make us look strange in the eyes of the world. But Lord, your word does not recognize a faith that is easily accepted by this world. And so help us, O oh God, to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, to contend for it today and always, no matter what it may cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This text was written by a disciple named Jude, and we believe was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus according to the flesh. And we're just going to look at Jude verses 3 and 4. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God has stood and will stand forever. It all started on October 31st, 1517, when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, just a couple of quick comments on that. First, I just want to thank you that nobody in this church has ever brought me a list of 95 complaints about First Scots. We're not perfect, but, but 95 complaints exceeds anything that I've, I've ever received. Second, the doors of this church were just refinished. And so if you do have complaints, just email them. Please do not nail them to the door of the church. Third, 95's a lot. And you could get the impression that, that Luther was just sort of a critical, whiny church member looking for things to complain about. Those don't exist here, but those do exist, don't they? Well, for four years prior, Martin Luther had been studying the Bible, particularly the book of Romans. And in his studies, he came to understand that the gospel, as presented in Scripture, was different than anything he had ever been taught, even as a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. The Scriptures taught of a salvation that was in Christ alone, received through faith alone, given by grace alone, all to the glory of God alone. And that wasn't what Luther had been taught. And so his grievances were not petty. They were about things like the authority of Scripture. They were about things like the meaning of justification and assurance of salvation and the centrality of the glory of God to the life of the believer. In other words, these are things worth fighting about because we have a faith that's worth fighting for. God used Luther to bring about a massive reformation. Scholars today trace our modern ideas of marriage of family, of liberty, of capitalism, of democracy, all back to the Protestant Reformation. But Luther's area of great concern was first and foremost the reform of the church. We hear a lot about Luther's courage, his boldness, his willingness to stand alone for the sake of the gospel, but that's, that's only part of the story. Luther was human. Luther was very human. He had clay feet. And it's interesting, he wrote the 95 Theses actually as an attachment to a letter to Archbishop Albrecht of Brandenburg. And at the end, Luther has named all these concerns that he has, and he, he makes this interesting question. 
but what can I do? What can I do? Do you ever have that sense of weakness? You, you, you look at the avalanche of what's going on in the world around us. You look at the fact that we are in the, in the midst of the greatest and swiftest moral transformation probably in the history uh, of the modern world, and, and we look around and say, what can I do? We watch the news, and it can be depressing, and we say, what, what can I do? We look at churches that are crumbling doctrinally, church attendance dropping nationally. We see compromise morally at every turn, even in the life of the church, and we're apt to say, what can I do? And the answer is what we see in the text today. We're to contend earnestly for the faith. That word for contend is epagonizomai. You hear the word agonize in there. It means to labor, to strain with great force, with great effort, to oppose anything that is not of faith. And we're not talking about a generic sense of faith here. Jude says to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He's talking about the Scriptures. You and I see the church in America wavering and wandering and withering, and and we have to ask, what can I do? And God says to us, contend earnestly for the faith. And that's not just what you can do, it's what you must do, because there is so much to do. As we consider this text this morning, I want you to see three ways we're to contend for the faith. The first is we're to contend for the truth of God's Word. Second, we're to contend for the reformation or the reform of the church. And third, we're to contend for the glory of God. So first, we must must contend for the truth of of God's Word. You know, in Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church paid homage to the Scriptures, but it was one of three sources of authority. Authority was considered a three-legged stool, and all of the legs were of equal length, so each of them stood with equal authority. One was Scripture, but second was tradition, and third was the magisterium, or, or, or the official teachings of the church. So Scripture was not alone as the highest authority in the life of the church. Of course, Rome didn't get there overnight. It was the result of centuries-long decentralization of the truth of Scripture in the life of the church. And so the light that had once shone brilliantly was now being eclipsed by the teachings and rituals of men. You know, the the fact, just the fact that the Scriptures, in worship, the Scriptures were only read in Latin, while so few people actually knew Latin, further subjugated the church to great darkness. But one of the mottos of the Reformation was post tenebrox lux, post tenebrox lux, after darkness, light. Humanly speaking, the darkness of the church in Luther's day was sucking all of the oxygen out of the room, 
was sucking out any hope of biblical reform. But the power of the Word of God is so strong, is so great, that when unleashed, it is such that it can bring light into the darkest of worlds. That was Luther's experience. He was studying Romans 1 for his his duties as a monk, and he comes to one particular line. In his own words, he, he said he beat against Paul to try to understand this verse. It was Romans 1, 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Luther got that. That's good. The gospel is good news, but what's good news about it? And he comes to verse 17, and it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the teaching that Luther had been under, the righteousness of God was understood to be a righteousness to which men must attain in order to be saved. It was through sacraments. It was through works that that people could grow in righteousness until they had enough to finally be saved. But of course, they couldn't know. They couldn't know if they were really saved. And Luther thought, how in the world is that good news? That I have to be good enough to attain to this righteousness? But he finally came to understand that when Paul talked about the righteousness of God there in Romans 1, it wasn't something we attain to through works. It's something we receive by grace through faith. It's about what God has done in Christ Jesus on our behalf. It's what Luther called alien righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of us that is given to us. And how do we receive it? Is it received by works and works and works and sacraments and everything else? It's received by faith. Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. The doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Now, the Reformation wasn't about a new discovery, but a rediscovery of the plain teaching of Scripture. That is the gospel that is taught from Genesis to Revelation. That is the foundation of the church. You reject the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You no longer have Christianity. it, It may have been like paradise for Luther, But the rest of his life was not easy. He knew what was at stake by opposing Rome. And in June of 1520, Pope Leo X condemned 41 of the 95 theses. But he offered Luther time to recant. In response, Luther publicly burned Leo's letter and refused to renounce his teachings. He was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church on January 3rd, 1521. Then he was tried at the Deet of Worms in April of 1521. Luther admitted that he taught doctrines contrary to Rome. And he knew that he could either repudiate his own teachings, renounce his own teachings, or be killed. 
When he was asked which he would do, he asked for time to consider the question. He understood what was at stake. The next day before the assembly, Luther refused to repudiate what he had taught, saying he could not recant unless convinced of error by Scripture or by reason. Otherwise, he said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Luther's life was spared so that he continued the work of exegeting and expositing the scriptures until his death in 1546, but some of the reformers didn't enjoy such long earthly ministries because of their commitment to the word. William Tyndale was one of those. Tyndale was an Englishman whose primary commitment was to translate the scriptures into English. Now, you and I take for granted that we have English versions of the scriptures. You probably have five different versions at home on your shelf, but in those days, it was a crime for the scriptures to be translated into the vernacular, into English. And so the average person did not know the word of God. They didn't have access to the word of God. Tyndale said, I perceived that it was impossible to establish lay people, the people of God, in any truth unless the Scripture was plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. That was his conviction, and he devoted his life to the work of translating the Scriptures. You know, just think about that for a second. The Church of England prohibited the translation of Scripture into the native tongue of the people. At one point, one of the bishops of the church opposed Tyndale's work, saying it would be better for the people to have the Pope's law than God's law. Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope. That was a faith worth fighting for. Tyndale translated the whole New Testament. He started on the Old Testament. He was arrested. Do you know what he did while he awaited execution? He continued translating the Old Testament. We have record that at one point he asked his jailer to go fetch for him two things, a pair of warm socks because he was cold, and his copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's a faith worth fighting for. It paid off, by the way. Nearly two-thirds of your English Bible is resting on Tyndale's English translation. He was burned at the stake in 1536. But God, through Tyndale, through Luther, through others, lit us such a fire among his people that they were hungry for the Word of God. You know, I I know, and I'm sensitive to this, and you're sensitive to this, but sometimes we can get a little bit antsy when the sermons go long, can't we? But do you realize in the days of the Reformation that oftentimes sermons were two or three hours long? And they didn't really complain about it. Do you know why? Because many of those pilgrims could still remember the smell of the burning flesh of their brothers and sisters who were burnt at the stake so that they could hear 
the word of God preached in their native tongue. They did not take the preaching of the word for granted. That's what it looks like to contend for the truth of God's word, to not be bored of it, to not be tired from it, but to hunger for it like a baby hungers for its bottle. Beloved, how badly do we need preaching in our land today? It doesn't have to be two to three hours, but it needs to be the bold exposition of the Word of God. That is the means by which reformation comes. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Luther did not bring reformation. God brought reformation as His Word was taught and proclaimed faithfully. Listen to Luther's own reflection upon that. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word did everything. You know, oftentimes today, well-intended people will say something like, you know, people don't want long, profound doctrinal sermons. They want short little sermonettes. They want sugar-coated little morsels. They don't want preaching. Well, that's nothing new. It's always been true. But the answer to that is not to preach less. All that does is cause the people to turn away and look to the world for what the Word should be providing. The Word does the work. When the people, Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote, when the people don't want to listen to the Word preached, the cure is preaching the Word. Without the Word, the church has nothing to offer, and so we are to contend earnestly for the truth of God's Word. Second, we must contend earnestly for the reform of the church. Now, when do things need to be reformed? When they've become deformed, when they have become misshapen. And in the history of the church, there have been many periods in which there was such a dearth of biblical preaching that the church falls into periods of deep error. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? Aren't you glad that for the last 500 years or so, we've been marked by doctrinal purity in the church? Oh, that it were so. It was a problem in Luther's day. It's it's a problem in our day, and it'll be a problem until we stand with the church triumphant in glory. That's exactly why Jude was writing. Look back at verse 3. I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, he wanted to encourage them in the gospel. He just wanted to reflect on the glory of God in the gospel. But an urgent need had arisen. False teaching had crept into the church and it was leading the people astray. And and so Judah's saying here, you've got to contend for the reform of the church. And beloved, we are not immune to that today. You know, false teaching doesn't walk around with a name tag that says, hello, my name is false teaching. And just like the fruit that Adam and Eve ate in the garden, it didn't have a a sign that said caution, poison. False teaching does not warn us how it wants to lead us to hell through the paths of heresy and the paths of complacency. It it approaches us secretly and quietly and, and insidiously. 
as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And beloved, that was the case at the Reformation, but it's the case today. Ligonier Ministries, every couple of years, does a, a study called the State of Theology, and they do interviews among Christians or, or professing Christians and also non-Christians in, in America. Listen to some of their findings in greater America, not just the church, but Americans. 51% of American adults believe that God changes. 71% believe that man is born innocent. 53% say that the Bible should not be read as truth. Now, once you say that, of course, you can make it say anything you want to, can't you? Well, the broader culture, as pitiful as that is, the church is really no better. Listen to this. 56% of American evangelicals, American Protestants, heirs of the Reformation, 56% say that God accepts the worship of all religions. 43% of American evangelicals deny the divinity of Christ. 37% of American evangelicals believe gender identity is a matter of choice. What's amazing about that is just two years ago, only 22%. It's increased 15% in two years. That's in the church that that's happening. That's not the faith once delivered to the saints. This is why the reformers had a motto, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Now, when I was in a liberal undergraduate college, I heard that a lot because what they said is, yeah, we've always got to be progressing Things have changed. The scriptures have sort of passed their expiration date. And so we need to constantly be changing and keeping up with the culture. That's not what Semper Reformanda means. It came from a 1674 uh, devotional book written by a Dutch theologian. And the entirety of that quote, always reforming, is the church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. See, there's, there's a tendency towards being deformed for churches becoming malformed, and so we always have to be about the work of reform. We don't reform the church according to the standards and cultural mores of our world. We don't reform the church to try to get on the right side of history. We don't reform the church to make our message more palatable to the unbelieving world. We reform the church so that it is ever more in line with the teachings of Scripture. That's reform. You know, there's a tendency among Christians to try to compromise with the world so that we don't look so backwards. Do you ever feel that struggle? That we don't look so strange? Well, beloved, Scripture has news for us. We are strange. We're strangers and aliens, and we are backwards because we are looking backwards to the Word of God, what He has revealed to us in Scripture. That's what we contend for. You know, as well as I do, that change is hard, isn't it? And nowhere is change harder than, the, uh, than in the church. At the local, denominational, global levels, church reform is slow. 
And you can be guaranteed that if you seek to bring the church into greater conformity with the word, you will receive pushback from others who have been conformed to the world. And you have to ask the question, is it worth it? Is this a faith worth fighting for? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a sincere question. What if, in order for First Scots Presbyterian Church of Beaufort to be a biblically faithful church, we have to stand at odds with the world on every major moral, social, and political issue? What if that causes us to be seen by the world as narrow, bigoted, backwards, and foolish? I want you to grapple with that reality because that's reality. We are going to be seen that way. We are going to be at odds with the world. And we need to be okay with that. We've got to contend earnestly for the reform of the church. We've got to be willing to risk reputation and wealth and even life and limb for the sake of the gospel. You know, it wasn't just the men that we're discussing here that risked everything for the sake of reformation. Do you know the name Lady Jane Grey? She was a godly young woman who loved the scriptures. She read them daily in Greek and Hebrew. She also happened to be the great-granddaughter of Henry VII, and she actually became the Queen of England for nine days. Until Mary came in, her troops arrested Lady Jane Grey, threw her in the Tower of London, and Mary started the work of returning England to Catholicism. Mary sent one of her bishops, her Catholic bishops, to interrogate Lady Jane Grey to see if she would renounce the faith, and instead she evangelized the bishop in such a way that he had nothing to respond to her, and she went to her death. Is the faith worth fighting for? I suppose that in the next few years, maybe in our lifetime, almost certainly in our children's lifetime, that question is going to have to be answered. Because gone are the days where we can be faithful Christians and loved by the world, if those ever existed. If God does not bring about revival in America, our reality will likely be that we will lose much for the sake of the gospel. The last two years have shown us a lot about the church in America. We know that most Christians aren't willing to go to jail for Christ because they're not even willing to go to church for Christ. Why? It's because they know nothing of the glory of God. That was really the goal of the Reformation. The goal of the Reformation was not to fix the church. It was not so much doctrinal as it was about worship, that the preeminence of God and the centrality of the glory of God would be at the heart of everything the church did. Beloved, if we're going to contend for the faith, the beauty of the glory of God has to be at the heart of our lives as well. So we have to be, third, a people who contend earnestly for the glory of God. 
Prior to the Reformation, the glory of God was all but invisible in the church. Christ, in some ways, seemed to be hiding behind his, his mother, and the belief was that if you wanted to get to Christ, you had to go through his mom, and she became titled the Mediatrix and Redemptrix. Neither term will you find in Scripture, nor would Mary herself have accepted that title. The saints through the ages adorned stained glass windows, and they were the recipients of the prayers of the people. What about indulgences? Do you know what indulgences were? It's really fascinating when you think about how indulgences worked. There, there was a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that said some saints were so godly that they did more than enough good to be saved. In fact, they had leftovers. Those were called works of super erogation, works above and beyond. And Rome had a dilemma. What do we do with those above and beyond works? What do we do with those leftovers? Let's throw them in the bank. They put them in what was called the treasury of merit. Of course, all of this is fictitious. None of it is biblical, and yet it was the practice of Rome for hundreds of years. In fact, if you were to go home today, you could buy an indulgence online. But what would happen is those works of super erogation, that above and beyondness, those were put into the alleged treasury of merit so that the rest of us who had not done enough to be guaranteed heaven could at the very least shorten our stay in purgatory. And so you had Johann Tetzel, a famous salesman of indulgences, and he would go town to town. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The people were told nothing of a salvation that was in Christ alone, by grace alone, received through faith alone, and lived to the glory of God alone. It was an utterly man-centered effort to reach heaven. That's why people did not live to the glory of God. John Calvin was right when he said, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. What makes it so hard for us to contend earnestly for the faith today? It's not indulgences, is it? It's for most of us, it's a craving of a life of comfort and ease. We want a Christianity, but we want one that doesn't marginalize us to the fringes of culture. We want a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. In some ways, and this is fascinating to me, John Calvin was one of those men. Calvin had pastored in Geneva, and it was a miserable experience. He was effective, he was faithful, but the people were so resistant to Reformation that they treated him terribly. Here's just a glimpse of it. Families would name their children obscenities so that when Calvin was baptizing the child, he would have to say the obscenity from the pulpit. That's how wicked these people were. And finally, they, they, they pushed Calvin out of Geneva. He went to Strasbourg. He had a, a faithful, quiet, peaceful ministry as a scholar. 
and he loved it. In fact, he would say things like this, I'd rather die a hundred deaths daily than go back to Geneva. Guess where God called Calvin to go? Back to Geneva. How does a man leave a, a comfortable life to go to a place where he's going to be shunned and hated? He was compelled by the glory of God. He longed for it to be seen over every inch of earth. All of the reformers had to come to grips with either their labors were going to be completely forgotten or they were going to be viewed as criminals. Think about the Scottish Reformation. In 1643, Scottish Covenanters signed the Solemn League and Covenant at Greyfriars Church in Edinburgh. It was a commitment to reforming the Church of England in accord with Scripture, and many of them were martyred as a result of it. I've been there. I've seen the graves of the martyrs. But do you know why most people go to Greyfriars Kirkyard now? Not to see the graves of the martyrs. They go to place flowers on the grave of Greyfriars Bobby. Do you know who that is? Bobby was a terrier, a dog whose owner died, and that dog went to his owner's grave and kept watch at his owner's grave for 14 years. It's been made into a movie. It's been made into a book. There's a statue of Bobby there in the kirkyard just in front of all those martyrs who lay down their life for the sake of the gospel, who have been forgotten in their own homeland and without honor and were superseded by a dog. The glory of God is worth it. John Knox was the leader of the Scottish Reformation. The best we can tell, Knox is buried under a parking space behind St. Giles Cathedral. He's not forgotten in his homeland. He's cursed in his homeland. But the glory of God is worth it. How can you be content to live a life of sacrifice to die and be forgotten? Only when you live and die contending for the glory of God. When you can say, John 3.30, He must increase, I must decrease. John Chrysostom in the 4th century said, if you knew how quickly people would forget about you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. Beloved, the, the need is no less today than it was 505 years ago. It's no less than it was 2,000 years ago when Jude wrote this letter. But God is no less able than he was 500 years ago. The word is no less powerful than it was, and the faith is no less worth contending for than it was 500 years ago. Well, what can I do? What can you do? You do what you're called to do. Contend earnestly for the faith. This is what you and I must do day in, day out, till Christ calls us home. How do we apply this text? Remembering the sufferings of our brothers and sisters 
is a great way to help us stop complaining about our own difficulties in this journey of life, isn't it? John Wycliffe was burned at the stake because he wanted you to have the scriptures. Reading about their suffering makes our difficulties seem much, much, much smaller, doesn't it? We need to be aware of what other brothers and sisters have given up and are giving up today for the sake of the gospel. You and I are apt to get antsy if the sermon goes long or the, the AC is too cold. Biblically speaking, suffering for the sake of reformation is the norm. The prophets suffered for it. The apostles suffered for it. Our Lord suffered for it. There was nothing exceptional about what the reformers went through. Then why should we expect to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease? That's the first application. Read, read these martyrs who have given up so much and it makes our problems seem much, much, much smaller. And second, study the reformers. Because as you study their life, there's one thing you're going to see. These were very flawed individuals. Calvin admitted he had anger issues. Martin Luther had major issues. These were men of clay feet. They're not perfect by any stretch. But here's what's so encouraging. God used them. Flawed as they were, God used these people. And if he can use somebody like Luther, read, read the biographies of Luther. Read Roland Bainton's Here I Stand. You're going to see that he had very clay feet. If God can use a Luther, he can use you. And so if you're apt to look at this broken, fallen world and say, what can I do? God says to you, no, look what I can do through you. Because that's what matters. Not what you can do, but what I can do through you. As we study those who have gone before us and we see their weaknesses, we see the strength of God and it renews our hope and it lifts our spirits to go about the work of contending earnestly for the faith. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we ask that you would give us courage to contend. We love to be accepted by the world. In many ways, we, we feel it pulling upon us such that, that we are tempted to compromise in so many areas. But Lord, you've told us no one can serve two masters. The Apostle Paul rightly said we're either a servant of Christ or of man, but we have to choose. We can't serve both. Father, I pray that as a congregation it would be worth it to give up whatever it takes to proclaim the truths of the gospel, to hold fast to the truths of the gospel, to live our lives for the glory of our great God who loved us and sent his Son for us. God, have mercy 